Welcome to Design Thinking Games, a fantasy and user experience podcast. Each episode, your podcast hosts, Tim Broadwater and Michael Schofield, will examine the player experience of board games, pen and paper role-playing games, live action games, mobile games, and video games. You can find every episode, including this one, on your podcatcher of choice and on the web at designthinkinggames.com. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you at patreon.com slash designthinkinggames. So I've actually wanted you all to meet for a while now because um, uh, Mike Schofield had me on his podcast when I was doing UX in higher education. His podcast is a metric, a UX podcast. And then last year, oh my God, was it last? I think it was last year. <laughs> I think it was the end of season three. Yeah, so I was on the Drunken UX podcast. So, um, and then that is kind of something to where um, being a guest on those two. Oh, nice! Like he's holding up your uh, book. That's UX FMK at your local Amazon. Yeah. So, really, both all the three people that are here actually inspired me to like really want to do a UX podcast. So. Um, so Michael Schofield, um, uh, Michael Finnan, uh, Aaron Hill. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I like that this is uh, some sort of like meet and greet, even though we asked you to come on the podcast. <laughs> hey, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. this is, You guys are our first interview. We haven't done one before. Um, and we just thought it was cool that we could get some folks on who are, who likely have like a ton of overlap, right? Where we all do UX work to some degree professionally. Um very, you know, we write or publish or talk a lot about UX and guarantee that we're all gamers. Say, <laughs> so it doesn't hurt that I've got Facts. like a, a hundred board games over in my closet. So mine are on the other side of that wall right there. Oh, for <laughs> real. Nice. All, all the books back here on the bookshelf uh, in the video, that's all role playing games. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, right here, my top shelf is all the board games nice. from my A-list. I actually went through a thing this spring to where if it wasn't a definite keeper game or maybe, then I gave it to the game to Goodwill. And so nice. there was a lot. Those are the best games Goodwill has had <laughs> in like a long time. <laughs> Probably. Every once in a while, you get some choice titles there. I've picked up a couple of good ones from my childhood at Goodwill. Yeah, so I... Our, so the Design Thinking Games podcast, kind of to what Michael said, uh, is really kind of still finding, I think, its footing. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of under this um, experiment or idea that people who are UXers actually really like games. And mm -hmm. we thought that this is probably, there has there's potentially something here. And then I would say over the course of season one, we kind of had that confirmed on social media to where a lot of UXers love like, <laughs> like gaming. And, and so there's this also intersect between player experience and user experience. Um, UX folks like journeys, right? Like crafting journeys and cust you know, customer journeys, user journeys is a big part of the work. And the journey of a player through a game is kind of like a, you know, not to go ahead and jump the shark early, but it's the, the gamified version of that, you know, <laughs> and that process mm -hmm. of 
starting out somewhere, going through transactional things, trying to complete certain goals and come out the other end with your thing done, so to speak. I, I agree. I yeah. find that like I've done some amateur game design and um, what I find is that like the parts of my brain that I use when thinking about like UX in web or like in app design is very similar to the parts of my brain I'm using when I'm trying to determine how to like model something like model a concept in a game interaction. Um, it just it feels like a very similar experience from a creative perspective. Earlier this year, we were taught, or Tim introduced me to this idea. I don't know if he named it. I feel like we stumbled on a name for it, but this idea of like operator agnosticism, where um, when you're designing, let's say, like a dashboard in, in, um, in a web app, um, the tendency is to say like, oh, let's take WordPress or whatever. These are bloggers who are going to do X, and they're going to need this variety of toggles, and they want to see this information on their list of blogs in their dashboard. Um, whereas the reality is, is like what's happening is, is that the, the job to be done doesn't really care about your role, whether you're a blogger or you're like an SEO marketer or you have some other title that you're all still using the same kind of like writing experience in WordPress. And so the idea of operator agnosticism is that like, you know, build a table that gives the, in this case, the user choice about what they see in it like if they don't want this column let them hide it um and you see that a lot in like um in, in games as well that the games that um have lately in the last few years have been like game of the year or or otherwise get a whole bunch of praise are those that really like allow um, players to choose and like set the parameters of how they experience that game can, can i throw a really bad example of that at you no do that, that <laughs> i i hope that when i say this your your instinct is to cringe but bear with me monopoly <laughs> so everybody cringe. hates monopoly i literally right? was just at a mall to where there's an entire shelving section of like monopoly knockoffs so like the simpsons right? monopoly so, star wars monopoly but here's why i bring that up because while most people who are like gamers will say, no, Monopoly is actually a terrible game, and it is. One of the reasons I think it has really held on and lasted is because of the amount of customization that is possible within that rule set. Mm. And, you know, that, that home rule instinct. Do you pay all your tax money to free parking, mm -hmm. or does it go to the bank? You know, do you collect $200, or do you get to go to an unclaimed property? people home rule all kinds of things around that to make it not just more fun to them but more palatable more accessible and it makes it feel like their own and it doesn't none of that feels like it breaks the game at any point um there's a mm -hmm. whole like cultural expression around that right like yeah a, yeah yeah like how like you, you you made a family and you play monopoly or something and it's like well how do you play it what are what are your rules? Yeah, no, exactly. You can tell a lot about a person about like how much of a jerk they are, right? <laughs> um, especially if you like get into, um, I don't know if like Monopoly actually like specifies rules about how you haggle, right, and how you like trade. Um, but they, um, loosely, the, but the, yeah, the, I've had to look like, at the rules not long ago. So it's loose. Oh my god! I'm, I'm yeah. gonna say something and then not expand on it, but let's just say. <laughs> Depending on how many clothes are lost during the course of a Monopoly game, that can also tell you a great deal about your group. 
I'm, I will say I I've I have played that version of Monopoly <laughs> more than once. When, uh, when you play so. Monopoly, you literally lose your shirt playing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, yes, I, so that's I, what that means. Yes. <laughs> I'm like in Monopoly, the, the rules that I find people frequently don't know, and some of these you probably know all these, but maybe not for the listeners. Um, like one is like uh, Michael mentioned, uh, do you put your money on free parking when you when you pay taxes or whatever? And like free parking is just free parking. But another one that I think a lot of people don't know is that when you land on a property, if you choose not to buy it, it's supposed to immediately go to auction. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's one way that the game gets sped up a lot because you can land on a property and then choose not to purchase it at list price, hoping that you can get it for a cheaper price um, and that someone else won't steal it from you. Um, and then the other one is oh. just that like, there's no there's no bonus money. The only money that gets added into the game's economy is passing go. So there's a regular addition of $200 per player each time you go around the board, adding into the, the game's economy, but that's it. And so the game should actually be very fast. You, like you can do a game of Monopoly if you play by the book in 30 minutes or less. Really? Yeah. Never has happened. <laughs> and play playing it playing it by the book, it's not a bad game. Like it real I mean it's it's cutthroat and like what it says about our we live in a society, you know, like that is obviously terrible. But I, I mean game design wise, like it's not bad. It's very tight, it's very controlled. Um it has all the hallmarks of like a general interactive type game, but People don't play by the rules. They like to make up their own because nobody likes to lose. And the game is built to be like the crushing loss of capitalism. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, because I, I was just going to say something like semi-profound, like, oh, what an interesting case study that the game transcended its own rules. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually played it the right way then I check, think check the rules out we always yeah. start with 200 or no you start with double money and <laughs> right. instead of having to go around the board once and yeah. then you know if you can't buy it uh then oh someone never can buy it unless another person lands on it or just like all of these home rules that i don't even know where they came from so you want to go down a rabbit hole here with um like the ux thing let's talk monopoly let's talk good monopoly there mm -hmm. is a game um i believe z-man uh produced it that, in my opinion, is every bit as good as Monopoly. It's all the good stuff about Monopoly with none of the bad, and it's Chinatown. Um, oh, Chinatown brings in the aspect of property ownership. the The concept of a monopoly, without it being exactly that, but this idea of you're trying to collect sets of things because they're worth more money, um, and it it has all of the haggling. Now, you know how in Monopoly, one of the hardest cool. things is trying to get the properties you need from the people they have them because it's such an inequitable choice, you know, when you're trying to trade people in Monopoly because usually it means you want both people to get something useful, but one mm -hmm. guy is obviously trying to bend somebody backwards a little bit or you're, you're literally on their hotel and have no money and so you're like handing over properties. Chinatown takes that and makes it fun and equitable because mm -hmm. you can haggle over something that you're like, yeah, man, this is going to make you a lot of money. But because of the way the game plays out, it's not necessarily going to make you a lot of money now. And it may not make you a lot of money later. It could. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this exchange of businesses that can happen and where they're located and all of this. To me, it's like they, they sat down 
and talked about what makes Monopoly, you know, what would make Monopoly fun. People love haggling. They love that action. They just don't like the way it works in Monopoly. They like ownership. They like trying to complete things. And so they got rid of pieces moving around the board and all of that. You get money every turn still. You know, you make money from your businesses. I really have found a lot of fun in that. And it also doesn't feel like it draws it out. A lot of games where it's user interaction and like trying to like argue with people or things, those games feel like they can really draw out on mm-hmm. over time. Chinatown resists that. Yeah, I, I'll have to check it out. It's rated really well on Board Game Geek, and uh, which of course is my <laughs> KPI for <laughs> if I purchase a game. Uh, and the value, the real power value of Board Game Geek, but I, that's actually one of the things that um, I've, I think like when you play um, Here to Slay or Munchkin or things like that to where it's like, let's haggle to see if we can take someone down or if we can buff the monster yeah. or, or like stack more on it. Uh, the haggling to, and Monopoly to me always felt just kind of like... Um, are you going to let me slide this month yeah. or, do I get to, or, do, or are you going to rake me, take me to the bank and I have to, I have to like, you know, exchange all of my property and to pay you off. And then it's just, it just seems really, there's, there's no depth to it. Like, and there's no way to add depth to it. It's a very superficial kind of like haggling that happens in Monopoly. And that's why I guess it works better in Chinatown because it plays out over, I think six rounds, six or nine. I can't remember now. Um, and it's like the way you haggle in the next to last round is vastly different from how you haggle in the first round because you only have so much time to make any money. The other way this works, I think, is, you know, in Monopoly, how you it, the game is predetermined well before it finishes, right? Like, you know, who's going to win before they win. Chinatown Generally. does a really good job of obfuscating the horse race a little bit so you don't necessarily feel like oh god they're so far ahead i can't catch them you have mm-hmm. stacks of money but that money changes every turn it you know it consolidates and you don't have to show it to anybody and so that that makes the game a lot more fun i think because you do feel like even up to that end you have a chance whereas monopoly it's like I'm going to go one more round, and if I land on one of your properties, I'm done for. I need you to land on 14 of my properties. This mm-hmm. this is over. Uh, here's here's some Monopoly trivia for you. Um, well, first, uh, another obscure rule is that if you own a Monopoly, rent is doubled, even without houses. A lot of people don't know that. It's written on the title deeds, but not everybody reads those. So you said you've played Monopoly recently, then. Yeah, well, I have kids. <laughs> Like, is it is it good for kids? I don't even know what the age rating is on uh, it, to be honest. With, with house rules, sure. <laughs> I, I played it pretty young, actually. I remember playing it in our first house, and I think we mm-hmm. were out of there by the time I was eight. I, I remember also playing it very young, like at my grandparents'. It's yeah. like the only board game my grandparents had. Yeah, same. We would play it with you to like the seashore and stuff. I would, I would go to the Jersey Shore or something and play Monopoly. So here's the trivia. One of the properties, the colored properties on the board, um, is not a street. Do you know which one it is? They're all one real of the locations. colored properties on the board, but it's not a street. Mm-hmm. Not the railroads, not the, the free parking or whatever. One of is the colored the properties. Nope. 
the color properties that you can buy, one of them is not a street. I'd have to, I, Parkway. I don't the, know. The one that jumps to me is like Marvin Gardens. Yes, that's it. Okay. Mar Marvin Gardens. <laughs> I can't believe you yeah, remember that. That that's was crazy. a housing development. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's gone, it, but it was in the early 1900s. It existed in Atlantic city. Um, every other one of the places were actual streets in Atlantic city at the time. Marvin gardens. So there's a, a book by, I think I read this when I was a kid. I, I'm pretty sure it's this one by Philip Orbanes. It's called Monopoly, the world's most famous game and how it got that way. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's really, it's fascinating. There's all kinds of great trivia there. Um, the Marvin Gardens thing, though, I found from uh, John McPhee. He wrote, it was called In Search of Marvin Gardens in his book, Pieces of the Frame. Um, and it was about his, like, about the history of Monopoly, but also, like, him literally looking for Marvin Gardens in Atlantic City. <laughs> oh, nice. I kind of want to know, like, what's on everyone's hot plate right now like what game are you obsessed with or what have you oh, giving easy like some time to diablo 2 <laughs> really oh, right that just came out right the remaster yeah yeah it's a remaster of the computer game yeah or, or was diablo 2 computer yeah yeah. Uh, yeah yeah back in the day 2000 so it is 21 years old and wow. if you want to oh, sure. feel like you've lost track of time diablo 3 is nine years old oh my god <laughs> jesus oh my god yeah that hurts doesn't it <laughs> A little bit. It does. <laughs> Diablo 2. Wait, so so is it good? It's Diablo 2. It's Diablo 2. Which, I, I yes, mean, but like that, did, that means yes, it's good. Did they it, did they change anything about it? Like yeah. did they fix anything or um so I mean this I think is actually a kind of a, a great topic for you guys as much as anything because of what they changed. They came out and said, We're not making the next iteration of Diablo. That's what Diablo 3 was. Um, Diablo 3 was good. My only complaint about it really was that it was very short feeling by comparison to the other games. And I don't know if that was just objective or subjective rather, but it felt very short. Diablo 2 always felt long. It felt big. It had a lot to it. You could do mm -hmm. a lot. Um, so they're like, this is the original game. A, if you haven't played it, or I mean, if you are playing it, but haven't switched it back and forth between legacy mode and new mode... I love it when they do that. Man. Um, Command and Conquer did that too. Also a game from my childhood. So of course I bought it. But it, the, the difference between those is very worth just looking at. One big thing they did though was we have a lot more power with regard to accessibility in games now. And so they did hmm. a lot more with transcription of all of the voice audio that is in the game. They've... Uh, giving you a lot of options for like uh, color palette, color blindness stuff. You do things like auto pick up gold now. You're not trying to click up, um, uh, you know, click every single little piece of gold to try to get it. So they've tried to help with mm -hmm. motor control. They have an article on their website awesome. about awesome. like how they sat down and said, how would we do this now, knowing mm -hmm. what we know about game design for people with disabilities? That's cool. But, yeah. It, I, it's I nice. love the grind in that game. Like, um, wow, it was just fun to like go into dungeons and grind and get experience, you know, in gold. What about you, Aaron? Uh, I, I'm just currently being wowed by the Diablo two preview you just shared. It's awesome. I'm gonna have to check this out. Um, let's see. Uh, board game wise, 
I've been rotating through a few different ones. Um, I've, I've been going to a weekly board game night, and that's been fun. So I get to try out a lot of games that I haven't tried ever before. Um, I think the one that's probably been in hot rotation just because it's fun and easy to play with new people is Splendor, the gem trading game. Mm-hmm. Um, I got the mm. expansion for that, so we've been playing some of the expansions. Um, video game-wise, I, most recently I replayed uh, my... Um, I was showing someone Sonic the Hedgehog 1 um, <laughs> and I was replaying it and I was like, oh yeah, like if you get all the Chaos Emeralds, then you could turn it to Super Sonic. But I mistakenly, I got Sonic 1 and Sonic 2 mixed up and um, so on Sonic 1, it's just a different ending. But I did do it though. <laughs> nice. Uh, I never I, saw the I, ending yeah. to any of those Genesis era Sega games. They're, <laughs> like, they're pretty I nev- brutal. <laughs> I never got past like the third level of either of the Sonics, Sonic 1 and Sonic 2, the only canonical Sonics. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I man, I never saw any ending um, at all uh, mm-hmm. on the Sega. Mike Schofield. <laughs> what, are, what, about, what are you playing currently? Yeah, so... Um, it's almost not worth mentioning, but like my my weekly my almost two year strong weekly D and D night continues. Um, and so I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, nice board games. I don't think I've um, done a ton other than board games with my kids. We play Dungeons and Dragons, and I introduced them to like Pandemic over the summer. Nice. Oh, that's which a great was game. A, which was a ton of fun, especially because they're. Um, we're, we're devastated by the pandemic winning. <laughs> Which, um, we named one of our, we named the uh, the red disease COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, I think we did too. And the yeah. black disease was um, like the zombie virus. Nice. <laughs> it was an awful pandemic. <laughs> um, but then like video game wise, I've been going back to, um, I well first I should be playing um, the latest Life is Strange. I downloaded it. Hmm. It's there. I'm waiting to play it. I love that series. Um, but I keep going back to like For Honor um, because it feels good to like swing a sword in that game. <laughs> you guys, like Tim, you haven't played it. Do, have you guys ever played For Honor? I have not. I don't, it's, um, I don't know what it is. It, yeah, For Honor is a um, fighting game um, that has, um, I want to say it's like realistic uh, weapons fighting, um, but you have to have your guard in the right spot to block and it's about timing and it feels like you have to practice to get good. And I like those games. Um, And it's just a great fighting game. And so, um, so I've been playing it. It sounds kind of like Bushido Blade or like Vagrant Story. Yeah. You have to really focus on how you block and parry. And it is really similar or or even something like Chivalry 2 where you have to like raise your shield or you're going to get an arrow in the face. Um, but it's one of those things that I think like um, I like the I like the material like I like knights fighting samurai I think it's cool oh um, right but I like that it you have to be good you have to practice to be good um, and it's actually if you if you're, it feels like something that's very or actually kind of like um merit based right mm-hmm. you know um, like you kind of earn your wins and that feels excellent frankly in a multiplayer nice nice. Oh, there is a board game. I haven't played it in a while, but it's, I think one of my favorites is, um, I forget the publisher. It's got like a red bird on it, uh, but it, the game is Above and Below. Uh, and then they also did Near and Far, Islebound, and 
there's another one, it's a smaller game, but Above and Below and Near and Far are both um, like worker placement games, but mm -hmm. they have um, a whole thing of like, there's a storybook that goes along with it. And when you like, in the Above and Below, when you venture into the underground, you like draw a random card and you roll a die and then it tells you which encounter you get. And then someone reads it and then there's usually like some narrative and then you have to make a choice and you have to roll a test using your the workers that you brought with you. Um, and then stuff happens. Uh, but there's also like you purchasing buildings and doing other things. But it's um, it's a it's it's a neat like mixture of like storytelling, but also like worker placement. Um, and then near and far is similar to that, but on a larger scale. Like there's a countryside you're exploring, um, and that's got more of like an RPG kind of thing. Like there's even like a legacy mode where you have a character and it, they level up and get abilities and stuff. The art it's is just cool. beautiful. I love the art for these games. We've uh, transitioned into pandemic. You mentioned pandemic, and it just made me think we've got a uh, we've got pandemic legacy on the shelf, like waiting. <laughs> see it there, and it's like I want to I want to touch it. I want to play with it, but we haven't gotten there. Yet. What are you waiting for, man? Like we literally but, just lived through lockdown. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually played pandemic one week before lockdown. Like I, we had friends over. Like a couple, and we had dinner. I think we made crockpot lasagna or something, and we're like, "What are we gonna play?" And we played Pandemic, <laughs> and it was just when they started to say, "Like, oh, I think there's COVID nineteen in this thing," and then literally the very like two days later oh, is God. when kind of the lockdown and everything happened, and <laughs> and so we now have this memory between two of our friends, and you know, me and my partner, and that <laughs> remember when the pandemic kicked off with us playing Pandemic. <laughs> We're gonna blame you, Tim. That's where COVID-19 yeah. <laughs> came from. <laughs> we, we've gotten on a big legacy game kick in our group because we went through around Christmas time and destroyed Betrayal Legacy in like the over the course of literally two straight days. Is that um, the Betrayal in the House on Haunted Hill? Yeah, yeah. One? And oh, that's such a good one. Oh, it's it's so good. It, What's legacy mode like? Um. Is that the is that the expansion no, it, or is it is that... a full legacy version of the game and it mm. is if you if you like betrayal on the house on the hill get it if you like legacy games get it if you like both of those things definitely get it um, oh, nice. the the start of that game and the middle of that game have two of my favorite points in gaming I've ever ran into um, the people they had do the game design on that and think about like a story game like Betrayal has like this, it literally has a story, and it feels very much like an American horror story kind of theme that kind of runs through each round of the game because it's the same people but in different kind of situations and stuff like that, and they really thought about how that would go. Um, the setup is so good. Um, I was caught off guard. I was surprised. Like, you know how hard it is to get into a game like that and genuinely be, like, delighted? Um, you know, in UX... So for someone who knows, like, what Balder... Like, I'm sorry, not Balder. I was about to say Betrayal at Balder's Gate, <laughs> which I like, too. But a Betrayal at House on the Hill, the, when you're saying, like, the legacy, what is what is that exactly? So it, I'm not it's sure. It's basically a game where it's meant to be played over time and... As you play it over time, the game changes. You put stickers on the board. 
you scratch off stuff on certain cards or put things on certain cards. You'll throw oh. stuff away. Like So the legacy aspect is that it's like mutable, that changes. Right. You actually change the game as you play. And unlike oh, some cool. legacy games, once you're done with it, it's still a playable game. Like it, you can then continue to replay it over and over. It's just now your version of Betrayal, and it just plays like a normal Betrayal on House on on the Hill uh, oh, type of cool. game. Uh, it, it was so good. Um, like it got everything right. I'm trying to think of like a moment where we were playing and a mechanic that just didn't work right or something, and it it just didn't hit those notes wrong anywhere. Um, That's good. Now, I don't have a ton of... My, my legacy game experience right now is limited to Betrayal and Gloomhaven. Um, and I haven't, like say, mm. Pandemic's waiting. It's there. I'm, I'm going to get to it. I, and, like, when I did, when, I are, you, when are you going to play it? When's that going to happen? Soon-ish? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, have, I haven't played it, but I I've, I've, have friends who have, and they really enjoyed it. Is, is Twilight Imperium considered legacy, then? Because I know it takes a long, long time to play it, but I don't know if it's technically legacy. I think legacy is when you change the game itself, right? Yeah. Oh, then no. I, I, I think it just takes a really crazy long time <laughs> yeah. to play Twilight Imperium. Like Android or <laughs> Axis and Allies. <laughs> mm. I remember when I was growing up, my dad told me about this game. It was, uh, I think it was made by Avalon Hill, but it was like a Pacific Theater um air combat like battle simulation game and the map for it was like 15 feet by 15 feet and they would start it at the beginning of the summer and it would take literally all summer long and they wouldn't finish because the, there was mm. like so much intricacy with the turns uh, it's on my bucket list <laughs> to play twilight imperium and i've seen one two and the third version now and it is notorious in the world as being one of the most complicated. Yeah. It makes me think of like Parks and Recreation, where they have the cones of Dunsire or something like that. It's just like there's so many rules and so many pieces and so much going on that it just like yeah, it, it takes you three months to play the game. Complex yeah. doesn't have to mean long though, right? Like or, or hard. Um, I'm I think of games like Dominant Species, which Dominant Species ranked real high there on Board Game Geeks for a while, and it's a game that. Like, when you spread it out and you look at it and you read that rule book, it feels like, oh my god, there is so much going on here. And mm -hmm. when I played it, that's a game that I think, and I, I don't know what their playtesting regimen was like, but I feel like whatever they did in that cycle, they got right. Because the mm -hmm. mechanics flow well, it's easy to understand, like, you know, transitioning between different scales and things and, and, and growing your species or changing something about the environment. That game is very dense, very complex, but plays like a, like a nice instrument. And then mm. you get into mm. something like Race for the Galaxy, which people love, mm. and I get it. I love Roll for the Galaxy myself, but Race for the Galaxy is good too. But that iconography can be such a dense, like, hard hurdle mm. to get over as a new player and trying to explain to people like when you bring a if you've got three people who know race for the galaxy and one person who's new the amount of time you have to spend explaining all the iconography to them and everything and what does what and how you play it 
that's a a stumbling block that mm-hmm. I you know I I know why they do it. I get why the iconography is important, but it it it's not you new user friendly at all. It's it's a hard thing. I remember when I my friend taught me race for the galaxy. It was so confusing to me that the cards like that you would take a card from the deck and put it face down on one of your planets and that was like the resource that you get from it because i'm like well wait does the underside of the card matter at all like like and it's just the idea that like they were using the cards for two different purposes was really hard for me to grasp at the time yeah i actually was at origins it it was canceled last year um and i picked up um it looked really great, and everyone was playing it. Zombicide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think I remember that one. It looks great. The artwork, the miniatures are phenomenal. Like it's it's great, and and that's what I wanted about the game. And like everyone looked like they were having fun playing it. And then when I finally got it home, and opened up the rule book, it is so dense that I'm just like, okay, we'll we'll just put this at the bottom of the pile, and I'll eventually get to this because this is going to take some time. Um, it's not one of those games that you can find like a YouTube video that teaches you how to play it in five to 10 yeah. minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, not that casual or easy of a game. And so, um, so I feel like I don't, I feel there's like some nuance there with like, well, what is the thing that we can put in front of a player, maybe a card that they know exactly what they can do in their turn or like, okay, here's a sheet that goes in front of the player that explains what all the icons are. I love those. Versus like, how do we simplify through video or through, you know, kind of the game manual uh, onboarding someone to the game so they can get in and playing and enjoy it like sooner rather than later. I know? like Zombicide. I know Zombicide. More games need to include those kinds of handouts. I know they all have like the little quick poker card reference things. But, like, there needs to be just, like, a general, like, quick one-sheet summary of, like, what happens on a turn. And I I don't think enough games do that. Thankfully, the player community usually makes them, for at least popular games, um, those are always really handy to have. There's a a cool concept that I encountered, I think, in some, like, Call of Cthulhu forum um, for the first time um, that... In like web design, you know, we 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 talk about usability in part in terms of its learnability. Like how mm. how easy is an interface yeah. to learn? Well, mm. the flip side is like your teachability index. Um, and there is this um, concept that I, I like, which is um, how how roughly easy is it for an experienced player or like the DM or whatever to explain the rules and get you started. So it's not one of those Mm. things. It it indicates that like, Hey, you know, for starting from scratch, one person, I mean, there's a book and you got to learn it. But if you could have one person who has it all in their head, how quickly can they teach it? Um, It's a different measure than learning it from scratch. And that's, and there's some games that are really good at like that, you Mm -hmm. know, teach it in a way where somebody doesn't, 10 minutes in say well you didn't tell me that <laughs> if i had known <laughs> yeah, that totally. i would have done this entirely differently i like how like D gets around that it's like ah oh, the dm is like your <laughs> rules are the highway <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't i'm not a fan of um i'm not a homebrew person and we can have a whole different episode <laughs> about that <laughs> i am an organized play person but uh, I feel like we run into the same problem in software development um that 
we always punt the documentation mm. training and instructional designer to the to the, the very end. Yeah. yeah, we just all the way to the very end. And then we bring them in and they're like, okay, it launches in two weeks. You need to do it. And they're like, I don't even know what the app does. I Someone's <laughs> going to have to walk me through it so I can translate it. And, and um, one of the things, you know, I'm trying to be more cognizant about like at the very beginning is, you know, we need to get, um, people on board, uh, you know, who are documentation and training people that can literally, uh, understand it as we understand it as it changes. And then they can help like with contextual help or tool tips or things of that nature, as opposed to just like constantly kicking that can down the road. Yeah. It's a, I, I think it's a constant problem that we see a lot in, in game design, in documentation, you know, the same way where it comes back to this notion of who's writing the documentation for who and how much time are they spending, like, going over that with people. Um, mm -hmm. I mentioned Gloomhaven earlier, and it's a it's a fine game. You know, I know it's real popular with certain folks, and I understand why. The rulebook is also garbage. Like, that rulebook is not good. Um, and they made a lot of decisions about the gameplay that is designed for thematic reasons, which again, I understand, but then they do a poor job articulating in the rule book. They'll name things like, you can have things like, well, that you're, you're strengthened or you're muddled. Um, and they'll have effects like this that really what they mean is you are advantaged or disadvantaged. They all have the same effect. You either draw two cards and keep the best one or draw two cards and keep the worst one. But they called it a bunch of different things because, well, you, it makes sense that you're you're going to have this effect or that effect, and I get that. But when I have to spend time in the rule book as we're playing, it it hurts. You know, it really slows down the fun having to go through these rules and figure out well, what does this word mean. You're using this like a keyword, so I'm looking for that keyword mm. in the rule book, and you're not using that word anywhere in the rule book. Um, that stuff is is really gnarly. Yeah. I actually love like one of my metrics for game board games, tabletop niche tabletop board games, right? Uh, that I like is onboarding is easy. I, there's other ones I like, but it's just like how quick can we start to play and how you know understandable it is. And um, kind of circling back to like one of the games that I'm obsessed with right now, not looking at like like. Um, I'm, I'm currently obsessed with Starfinder and Pathfinder and Pathfinder 2nd Edition, and I just went to a con and played like five games for five hours each, like 25 hours of gaming over the weekend. Nice. Um, and, I, uh, and I'm actually playing through Mike uh, Schofield, like challenged me to play through Mass Effect Legendary Edition. One of the greatest games of all time. <laughs> yeah, and I'm on three right now. And so we're just about to start three, but like tabletop board game, I don't know if you know it. It's ranked really well. I bought it, I've played it, and I'm obsessed with it. Psycho Killer. Kiss Kissé? This is new to me. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to do that. I knew was going to say that. <laughs> Psycho Killer is literally Uno. If we it play, is... Can we play 10 seconds of that in our uh, podcast without <laughs> copyright strike? Just the fuh 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 I think it's part. like six seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it is a, I, I'm doing it injustice by calling it Uno, but it's essentially like kind of that exploding kittens kind of, mm. you're just controlling the flow of the cards. Is it reversing or skipping or backing, you know, but, um, 
it's got a really a lot of cool mechanics and um and the theme that's wrapped around it is like 80s slasher horror this looks amazing you are like collecting wounds and weapons and then you're trying to like survive and be the person who's not killed or wounded the most you know um and i cannot recommend this game enough and the reason why i say it is because it's video that they created for onboarding to learn you how to play it and it's instruction guide is like the best example of instructional design for a game i've seen recently nice i i think that um you mentioned earlier about like uh actually no, michael's talking about the keyword thing like is this a keyword i'm going to look for it in other places and that's that's something like when i'm writing either a procedural or like if i'm writing rules text or something I, I try to be very careful about what words I use to describe things because if if a mechanic is the same, you should call it the same thing each time so that you can reduce the cognitive load of the person trying to learn the game. Um, yeah. And in game games that have uh, like explicit names for different concepts and those concepts are unique to those things, those, those are great. And when you have games, and I'm trying to think of one that like does this poorly, and I'm having trouble thinking of one, but um, I, I definitely notice it a lot, like in in rules text though, when they just get too verbose, and it's clear they didn't have an editor, or at least not an editor who was familiar with like games, like game Tannhauser. Kind of mm-hmm. Tannhauser has that problem. That. You will never play that game. Don't worry. But just trust me, the rule <laughs> yeah. book is that, rated that the, the rule book is a crime. Well, actually, like, uh, did any of you play second edition D anD D? Oh yes. Okay, remember Thaco armor class? Yeah. Um, yeah. Two hit armor class zero. Yeah, yeah, and and like you know carrying weight and like encumbrance and uh, mm-hmm. like all of that. The saving throws were weird. Like everything about that felt so like overly specific and like third edition fixed a lot of that by making everything positive bonuses. I, I think that was like a big improvement. And then I I, I feel so triggered right now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I feel so triggered. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I was, I spent the majority of like my youth probably in second edition. Mm-hmm. And I know yeah, that too. the final like <laughs> screw this game moment where everyone flipped the table <laughs> is like when they literally added psionics. And oh people yeah. People were like, no. And they were just... I have, and I have the blue, the brown handbook for that upstairs in the second edition. Player's Guide to Psionics, yep. or Player's Handbook to Psionics, <laughs> yeah. Another question I wanted to ask everyone here is, is generally, it sounds like we all have a lot of experience with UX and a lot of experience with games, but I, I think the question that I kind of want to know is, um, uh, it doesn't matter if it's a board game, video game, tabletop game, live action, whatever. I just want to know kind of what is the first thing that pops into your frontal cortex or your brain about what is a really usable game, one that you were just impressed with, like everything, like artwork, instructions, gameplay, enjoyment is just like at that top of the list for you. In terms of like quality of UX, like, uh, very just enjoyable okay. usable what is the honeycomb you know pretty much like all of the metrics all <laughs> right, the checkboxes right. on the honeycomb high desirability low accessibility <laughs> yeah <laughs> so there, there's two games that come to mind uh when i think about like if i'm if i'm meeting up with a group of people 
who maybe have varying levels of experience with games, right? So maybe they've played a bunch, maybe they haven't. You're not, you're not really sure, it's gonna be a mixed bag. Um, the two games that I think I always have with me are Splendor, which I mentioned before, and Camel Up, also Camel Cup, either one, even in German, either one is okay. The board game designer that made it says so. Camel Up, Camel Cup, the same. Um, the reason why is because in both games, the the actions that you can take on each turn are like limited to like four, maybe five different possibilities. It's really easy to like grasp just those four or five things, and uh, and you can basically take any of those actions in any turn with like minimal risk, or like you're not going to screw yourself for the later of the game, um, majorly at least. You can just do stuff to advance the game forward, so that you you can interact with the game without having to make a whole lot of like mental calculations or anything. I, also, the artwork on both of them is great. Splendor's artwork is beautiful, and Camel Up's artwork is very thematic and like kind of fun. Um, mm -hmm. And Camel Up does a really great job with reinforcing the theme of like your your betting on camel races. Um, and the other thing I really love about Camel Up is that the game is so absurdly swingy. I've seen the cam. Um, have you played it before? I have not. I've not okay. played either of those two, so I'm actually going to have to add them to the list. Okay, so I'll give you like the 20 second synopsis. Um, it's a, a race with five different colored camels. They go one lap around a track, and while they're going and they're moving, uh, everyone's making bets on the progress of the race until it finally ends, and then that ends the game. Um, so there's mechanics in the game that affect uh, like catch up and like how the camels like progress on the track. And I've seen games where the camel that was in dead last ended up winning because mm -hmm. the dice just came out in a certain order. And man, like, I'm not exaggerating when I say that when I played this with my family and that happened, there were literally hoots and hollers and like, like scream. Like it was, it was really exciting. And it was like, holy shit, this is always happening. <laughs> and nice. The one, the long shot nobody was expecting just suddenly jumped into first and then won. Um, it's, it's a really great game. It won Spiel de Yara. Um, in 2015 or thereabouts. Um, I, I think one other honorable mention, Condottiere is a beautiful game with beautiful artwork. The original release of it had like um, Tarochi sized cards, like the real tall columnar cards. Um, it's like a bidding game for territory control of uh, Reconstruction Era Italy. Um, unfortunately, it's not an easy one to explain um, and that's makes it harder to introduce to people. But when you play with people who know the game, though, it's so much fun. Um, mm. There's just a whole, like, when you know the game and you're playing other people who know the game, there's a whole layer of, like, oh, well, they played that card, which means they probably do or don't have this. And you have to, like, get behind, you know, behind the hand and really re kind of read their minds. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a really great game. It's just not easy to teach someone in five minutes. Like, mm -hmm. maybe, like, 20 minutes to explain it. So then it goes to you, um, yeah. Michael um, F. or Michael this, S. This is the kind of thing I, I should have prepared for a little better. Um, oh, no, it's, I kind of want to, it's like what pops into the front of your mind. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> here's the thing, right? There are a lot of games I really enjoy, and there are games I play a lot of that I also would not consider necessarily good games, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's like movies. I watch, there are movies that I watch that are total trash that I would never recommend to somebody, <laughs> but they give me some kind of, like, visceral enjoyment. Um, 
How about this? So I've already given you a love letter to Chinatown. I do think Chinatown is a game that anybody who likes Monopoly and wants more, a lot of folks would say, you know, there's a lot of love for Catan as sort of the gateway game. Like if you've, if you feel like you've outgrown Monopoly and you want to go a different direction, but not get something hard that people can, you know, still kind of get into Catan served <laughs> as that for a long time. I would, I would go ahead and throw Chinatown as a gateway game. Um, Another gateway game that I think pretty much gets most everything about itself right. It knows what it is. It's easy to get new people in. It's fun with people who really know how to play it. Is Kill Dr. Lucky. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, Kill Dr. Lucky is... So you know Clue. Kill Dr. Lucky mm -hmm. is the first half of Clue. Clue is all about figuring out who killed the guy where and with what. Kill Dr. Lucky is mm -hmm. all about oh, wow. get in a room with the guy and kill him with something and not be <laughs> <Amazing>. seen. <laughs> How have I not heard of this? I know, this is amazing. Is amazing. <laughs> it's, it's not complex. It has a very simple mechanic. The old guy is walking around his house. However many people are in there are trying to get in rooms. You've got line of sight to consider, and you get cards, and it's all about – and. And everybody else has spoiler cards. So you're like, I'm going to kill him with the hammer. And somebody throws a card. It's like the, the dog goes running through the house. And, and so it, like your, your attempt <laughs> is spoiled. And, as, and you build up points for every spoiled attempt. So over time, you will eventually have enough points that somebody is going to outweigh the number of spoiler hmm. cards that everybody plays on you. Uh, I, I've seen this before. I said that I, I, I misspoke when I said I have not played it. I, I haven't played it, but I've seen it been played before at a gaming it, con. It's is fun. this the one that is like a print and play? They have a print and play version? Um, I don't know if they do or not. I've I've got the, okay. the full version of it. It's a, But it's a relatively cheap game, and I want to yeah. say Walmart carries it now. Like, it's huh. it's that, like, mainstream as far as things go. But it's it's a well-thought-out game, and I, and I like that they did this idea of, like, like I say, the first half of Clue, because that makes it feel very, like, grounded in something that people do know. A lot of people mm -hmm. know Clue. Even if they haven't played Clue, they're familiar with it. So they, I think it reduces the amount of anxiety they may have about getting into this game, and, oh, I'm going to suck at it, because I don't know the rules. It's my <laughs> first time. Um, mm -hmm. A hard game that, and I'm trying to think if I really consider this to be a game that gets things, like, mostly right and given the amount that we play it and the amount of fun we have with it i'm gonna say yes that's lords of Waterdeep. oh love it i love oh that game God. that love is that. literally the one i was yeah, going so, to say okay well then i'm right There's... i get another gold star thank you <laughs> i love totaling games and i don't want to i don't even know if they're called that is that the mechanic but like ticket to ride and other games to where yeah. you're like you don't know until the end until yeah. everyone like mm. reveals all their cards and i was i was working on this railroad or <laughs> i had this quest or like and so it's always kind of exciting um at that last five minutes because you're kind of seeing what everyone did and you weren't even aware of the whole game that they were working yeah. on X. You have you that know. opportunity at the end. Like, even if you're in last, it's like it's not out of reach because I still have this stuff in the bank and I know I'm mm. going to jump 20 points, you know, whatever. Mm. But there's also a lot to it. You know, there's a lot of gameplay to mm. it. it. Thematically, it's very rich because it's got a lot of the D&D &D stuff to draw on. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, like, grit to it for people who enjoy that kind of, uh, of world. Um, so, I mean, those... 
I, I, I had another, like, easy game, and now I just simply don't remember what I was going to throw out there. Um, but those two, I think, are are definitely high. They're easy to pull out. They're, they always get, like, you know, good marks from folks whenever they get into them. Um, I like other games, like Firefly. Firefly is great. It takes 18 hours <laughs> to play. I was just going to say, <laughs> I, I love the Firefly game, and my son and I play it sometimes, but that... It, like it drips with flavor if you've seen the show and you love the show the you'll love the game um but holy it's, shit it's... like there is nothing in the game that drives itself to completion so you can literally just fly around the verse and run missions and stuff and have fun and then just decide when you're done playing um and that's actually a totally legit way to play that and, game and i have every <laughs> expansion you, oh, wow. you need oh, a wow. dining room table and two leaves and extra table space if you yeah, have all the expansions it's gigantic like it, I and see to me like that's that makes it not really that great as a result. Um, I like Mansions of Madness. Um, I think the second version is better. The second edition is definitely an improvement on the first edition because um, it's another game that these there's a lot of these games that they're really fun thematically, but um, Arkham mm -hmm. Horror kind of falls into this a little bit. Like man, it's fun. I'm 39 years old now. I don't want to stay up till 4 a.m. playing it. <laughs> so that kind of hurts it for yeah. me. So I'll, I'll I'll leave it with those two then. Uh, we got Lords of Waterdeep and we've got Kill Dr. Lucky. I'll have to choose another one because you took Lords of Waterdeep from me. So I've got more, so it's no problem. I, I love how you explain Kill Dr. Lucky as the, fir the first half of Clue, like Clue before Clue happens. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that explains so much of the mechanics behind the game that you have like an instant understanding of of what the game is before you even it's a great rules. elevator pitch yeah yeah it's, it's wonderful what what yeah. i want to see somebody do I, I don't know if this is even possible but i want to see one group play kill dr lucky and then the second group mm. play clue based on the outcome of kill dr lucky <laughs> <laughs> that'd be awesome um but my friends and I once played a game of Risk where every time you attempt to attack, take a territory, instead of rolling dice, it turns into a game of Stratego. We did not make it through a whole game of Risk this way, but... I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> this appeals to my wargaming instincts. I love it. Oh my god. <laughs> well, like, the Stratego pieces you get are based on how many armies you're attacking with. Oh, proportionally this is a great and so order. you have to kind of like you draft them etc um, oh no i yeah. don't have a marshal yeah <laughs> yeah i, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to play this <laughs> what about you michael Schofield? yeah like what is my i mean i may know this already so i'm not going to say anything <laughs> i mean there are a few the, the games that i love that i think have like what i'd call a net positive ux necessarily imply that there's things about it that really suck and are hard to get into I've actually got three, um, <laughs> and so um, and I just have to name drop these. Um, like in terms of like board games, um, the one that I love, um, I think maybe out of nostalgia because it's you know um, it, it's a super goth game. It's um, it's one of those that are like highly themed. It's the first game I really played that had um, like in the second edition that had like miniatures with it. It was like a high production value board game, um, and I love it. And it's the Fury of Dracula, um, hmm. where you, you uh, for the most part, are probably a vampire hunter chasing Dracula himself across the old world. And one of the players 
is Dracula. And there's like day and night cycles. So during the day, you and three other compatriots work collaboratively to um, locate Dracula, kill his undead minions, basically drive a stake through his heart. But then night happens and Dracula can flee to the next city, like um, like uh, create a whole bunch of like vampire spawn and just otherwise escape, but also spread the dark seed across like the Victorian Europe. Um, and it's wonderful and it's timed and there's only like eight eight nights. You got like a week to do it and then it's over and then Dracula wins. Like I, same thing with Pandemic. It's like, I like the idea that the bad guy wins. It's really cool. Um, it's just a cool theme. Um, but in terms of like, um, but I was, I was really racking my brain because like what's like the most usable game which suggests something to me other than like most fun um <laughs> and i i was just kind of like going through my um like my library um and this one's uh, like a video game but um i want to give a shout out i don't know if this ranks anywhere um really if i if i really had to make a hardcore list but this one like stood out to me and i was like this is a great ux um have you guys like played uh, valiant hearts huh. um no it's a side-scrolling World War One love story game, um, okay. and it came out like across, like on. You can get it on your iPad or your Xbox or PS4 or whatever. Those are like matter. three different things that I never would imagine being mushed together. <laughs> so, so, so the idea, like at the heart of it, is like a story. It's a love story between, um, like a like a French, like an more like an elderly French farmer his daughter and his daughter is in love with an Aust- uh, an Austrian farmhand and then the great war starts and the Austrian farmhand gets drafted um, and the French elderly father also gets drafted um, and you play a kind of like cartoonish it's, it's it's they do it like really respectfully but like a cartoonish campaign on both sides through the great war um, until da 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 they either reunite or they don't no spoilers but that's the kind of story can you survive the war long enough to get reunited with your love or to get back to your daughter or or whatever and sometimes you play as a dog it's 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 there's a lot in there <laughs> um but um in terms of usability like great um super like super cartoony like like friendly comic book thing that you might find at like um like in the children's part of the library right um uh it has like great hints um and has like great mechanics like that and it's just a side scroller the controls are really easy but it's treacherous because you have to like evade bombs watch out for mines watch out for mustard gas it's really pretty gruesome and sprinkled throughout this kind of comic booky world war one um game is um are like little little like postcards of real history um, that show like, hey man, this is a cr- this is a bad time <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Um, I totally recommend it. Like like for, for the folks who, you know, like to play games on their screen. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where like my son played it at age seven. Oh, wow. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, because it was on my iPad or whatever and he, he played through it and he was really interested in it and he walked away knowing something about the great war and he cried at the end you know it was Aww. it was a it was a good experience right that a kid can just pick up and play but really heavy concept um and it's just one of those things that like i can't really think of a whole lot else that does that anyway like i said i just found this like scrolling through my library and i was like oh my god i totally forgot about this game and it's one of the 
I don't know, like you think about like the UX honeycomb or any of those models, it like fleshes out the entire circle. It's really good. <laughs> Put on your radar. Nice. I've actually have Fury of Dracula on my Amazon wishlist. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> it's well, usually like I know you've talked about it. I know you've talked about it a lot, and it's rated pretty decently on Board Game Geek. And it's I love that. I, as you know, love asynchronous horror, and it's like asynchronous horror in the form of a board game. <laughs> so it's um, kind of like Betrayal at House on the Hill to where, hey, we're all friends, and then, oh, I touched a voodoo artifact, and now I'm a witch yeah. or a zombie or a mummy <laughs> or, you know, whatever. I do think I had Fury of Dracula, Dracula on my wish list at one point, and it went out of print, and I took it off. But I'm looking at the map now, and yeah... I think I know this game. I think it. I think it was on a, an episode of uh, Tabletop. Tabletop. Yeah. Yes, that's mm. where yeah. I learned about it too. Yeah. Nice. Could I could I give a quick shout out to a game whose board game version was terrible UX, but the app game version was awesome? Um, have any yeah. of you played Elder Signs? Yes. Oh yes, I've yes. got all of it. As all of it. Cthulhu Yahtzee. Yeah. Um, so the. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. <laughs> tabletop version i have it and i've i've played it a bunch i even have like a little field notes book that has like every time i play it we write down like which was the elder god and did we win or lose who was playing etc um but man so much table maintenance and the app version which i actually played before i played the tabletop version the app version fixes so much of the game that it mm. makes it so much more fun and you could focus a lot more on like the you know the dice rolling aspect which is a lot more interesting than maintaining the table state um so kudos did, to the development did, team. did you advance that. the clock did you remember to, <laughs> to move the clock up three hours did right forget right. that i don't remember that. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes that's happened a lot i don't think i'm pretty sure that was one of the games like Sheriff of Nottingham, or I mean, mm. it was one of those ones where I'm like, fuck this game, I'm done. This <laughs> <laughs> was like, I, this is too, I don't care about it, it anymore. If you like um, Cthulhu games, you have to be a little bit of a masochist. Many of them are very good, yeah. but they all hurt. All of them take a toll yeah. on you in one way or another. <laughs> they do. Uh, they do. It's 100%. So I have strong feelings about Cthulhu games. <laughs> so. I like the idea that they're intentionally obtuse games. <laughs> <laughs> I will have to say, for mine, from the from the tabletop perspective, it has to be. I, I love, um, even though I think if I got a group of people together, I would want to play in a collaborative board game. So everyone's always thinking like, Forbidden Desert or, or something to where we're all working together and it's fun. But I'm competitive, and <laughs> if it is the right group of people, I love me some. Munchkin, and I love me some King of Tokyo or King of New York. Mm. Um, and I, what I love about and Munchkin's great because it's like a simplified Dungeons and Dragons to where you're a base character and you add your sex, your class, your race, and your armor and everything to it, and you kind of bump it up. And there's so many flavors of Munchkin now that it's just like Monopoly, to where it's just like made every single version of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. Uh, I'm sure you've played oh, Munchkin, yes. um, but if you've not played, I'm not sure if you've played King of New York or King not of Tokyo. <laughs> it is one of those games to where it's like, I just want a bunch of big dice and I want to slam them down and like attack everyone else at the table. And I want to give the monster I have a third head and eye lasers and like wings so I can like mutate them to like dominate and destroy 
all the other players, and it's it's just so gratifying that you roll these dice that have claws on them for attacks, and it's just physical, and that's, I guess, what I really like about that game, and I don't know anyone who's played the game and not had a blast. It's So user experience or player experience-wise, I think a lot of people just want to be a giant monster that, like, destroy cities and like fights other giant monsters to the death there, you, know? the, you name two games there between king of new york and and forbidden desert that also interestingly the sort of bigger version quote unquote is definitely the better version like there one like if you buy the base version then buy the advanced version you discover you never play the base version king of tokyo though did a good job of saying but you have all these monsters and you can use all these monsters and everything in in the bigger version. So they they brought it along. And Forbidden Desert did oh. not do that with Forbidden Island. So it's like if you want to play Forbidden Desert mm-hmm. or something like that, you'll almost never go back to Forbidden Island once you have it. Yeah. Hmm. The thing I like about uh, the King of Tokyo is that the the mechanic around who gets pulled into the city, like you know, you go into the city. Okay, now everyone's hitting you, and you're hitting everyone until you choose to leave but then when you choose to leave whoever hit you is the person that has to go in so the game is always pushing always pushing forwards has to be someone in the ring you can't (laughs) have the ring unoccupied you know and what i guess i think i like about munchkin and the thing that i like that's similar between munchkin and um king of tokyo is uh i love the add-ons you can add like you can buy you can play Cthulhu, you can play King Kong, you can add like all this stuff. But then with Munchkin, apart from the different games, which I have played a bunch of the different flavors of Munchkin, but Zombie, Munchkin Zombie is by far the best. (laughs) So instead of the normal Munchkin where you're kicking in the door, fighting the monster and getting the treasure, you're kicking in the door, eating the person. And (laughs) it puts you in that way. And it's so gratifying to like eat, um, accountants and teenagers and cops and you know neighbors and you know and you have instead of the classes or races that you have in traditional like dungeons and dragons or high fantasy that's in the core munchkin you have this kind of um the zombies munchkins are like oh are you a are you a toxic energy like (laughs) zombie or are you a voodoo zombie or are you a radiation zombie and so it kind of goes um, but I love the fact that you can, if you do like the game, you can add supplemental, um, you know, kind of monsters and cards and stuff to it. And I feel like those games don't have a huge learning curve and they are always quick. They're always done within an hour. Yeah. So Smash Up's kind of like that too. It's It's got that like, hey, which, you know, which expansion sets you want to add to your set and everything and change the way things feel. And it, it's kind of got a fun little... Unicorns and Transformers. Those are, the, <laughs> those are the two you want to put together because that's like the ultimate speed attack if you have unicorns and Transformers. You all are um, coming up almost on your 100th <laughs> episode. And I just listened to your WordPress episode on Drunken UX Podcast. Um, Drunk, yeah, the, the WordPress episode was great, actually, because as someone who's been kind of working with it for years and like, this is what I always do versus <laughs> like uh, what you can do or what other people's setups are um, was kind of neat. And I guess I want to plug, you know, kind of as we're wrapping up, I know how I would describe 
the Drunken UX podcast, um, but I don't know, <laughs> like, if you have, like, if there's people out there who haven't heard of you, I mean, what, how would you describe uh, your podcast? So everybody, everybody has not heard of us. That's kind of the way that goes. Um, <laughs> now, I, I tell folks, you know, Drunken UX is, is, the show is not about UX. The Drunken UX is about the listener's experience with us. We're sitting there because... We're, we're two middle-aged men uh, from the elder millennial uh, generation, so obviously we have to have a podcast where we sit and drink. Uh, but we, we do talk UX, we talk accessibility, we talk uh, design, mm -hmm. development, from the technical to the non-technical. Um, and it's all about, you know, if you are somebody who is interested in web development, interested in web design, how people get into those positions, you know, what, what those journeys look like, and what you need to be thinking about to get further, that's that's what we like leaning into a, a lot. Um, we, we try to keep things light. Um, if you're high tech, if you're deep in the field and you love syntax and you love web developer T and, and those shows, fantastic. They're all great. We aren't them. Uh, they, yeah, it's a different kind of they show. They are fantastic. Yeah. And they, they have you know their niche. They know their stuff. Um, we, we take a lower brow approach a little bit, I guess. And well, I, well, I wouldn't say lower brow, like we're not, <laughs> we're not being prurient with our more, humor. More we're just maybe, yeah, yeah, that's definitely better. casual, <laughs> um, but we have fun with it. And that's, you know, we, we, we do bring in guests, um, as frequently as possible to talk about, you know, what they're building, mm -hmm. what they're excited about. Um, we just had Kellen Mason from WP engine to talk, uh, with, uh, about mm -hmm. the headless WordPress stuff. That was a fantastic talk um, yeah. that really, you know, it, it just helps expand the understanding of what you can do with all of these tools that are out there from, is it WordPress? Is it, you know, the way you go about user research? Is it how you think about, you know, making your site available to people that, you know, have different abilities? Um, that stuff's important to us. And so we enjoy sharing it. Um, if anybody wants to check it, we have new episodes every other Monday. Um we're at drunkenux.com. Search for Drunken UX in your podcast thing. We're on all the things. Um, and yeah, episode ep both, we, we have this sort of uh, convergence. Episode 100 is going to come out. Um, and we've got some stuff we're going to be announcing there. And then in like mm. two more months, three more months, the the season four finale has to come out. So I've got to like, I, yeah. I need to figure out what's what, what we're announcing for the 100 and what we're doing for the finale. So... I don't know. Stay tuned. It, it's going to be a surprise to me too. The finale will just be like the the amazing stuff that's happened since the hundredth episode announcements, right? Like that's obviously we got, what goes right. there. We got picked up by Spotify. <laughs> you know, we signed a major label. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Yeah. Joe Rogan of UX. <laughs> <laughs> God, actually, you know, like other than I, I guess, if you replace all of the cannabis with alcohol, that's probably not far off. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the ux of aliens <laughs> yeah basically yeah yeah i i the one thing i really like about our show is like is the casual tone but i i think that a lot of the newer podcasts with like the younger uh the young people the people uh showing up in it yeah Ooh, like younger they, people they have fantastic ideas and they are so innovative and moving forwards and i, and I think that michael and i have a lot of experience and i think that from that experience it it helps inform us to talk about like more nuanced things like accessibility and usability because those are sort of like you really have to have a keen understanding of 
like HTML and of like mm -hmm. how websites function and things to kind of really grok that. And that's something that I think that is a perspective that we both bring to it. A nice way of saying we've uh, earned the gray in our beards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do have, I don't have much of a beard, but I do have gray hairs in it, so. We definitely appreciate you both Absolutely, gracing man. us on this episode. Oh, yeah, and totally. I love talking about the intersection of, of user experience and, and games, and thank you both for being on. This has been You fantastic. bet, anytime, man. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. You have an open invitation <laughs> going forward. If you ever want to just sit and talk about <laughs> games uh, and user experience, um, you're always welcome. Thanks. We put a lot of work into Design Thinking Games, so if you like what we do and want to help us cover some costs, then consider supporting us at patreon.com slash designthinkinggames. We also are Design Thinking Games on TikTok, Twitch, and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Design Thinking Games podcast. To connect with your hosts, Michael or Tim, please go to designthinkinggames.com where you can request topics, ask questions, or see what else is going on. Until next time, game on.